Hi, this is Chris Campbell, and welcome to the Food Institute podcast. Today, we welcome Jerry Fernandez, president and founder of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. We're going to be taking a look at how the food service and the food manufacturing industries could be more inclusive and how that may boost the bottom line for a company. But first, whether you're a first-time listener or becoming something of a regular, we ask that you share this episode on your social media platforms. It really helps us expand our reach. We appreciate it when you do so. And we should also note we're on Spotify and iTunes now. So if those are your platforms of choice, please subscribe to us there and you can listen to our episodes every week. So with that all said, I'll introduce Jerry and ask him how he's doing today. So how are you, Jerry? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Chris? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, today's episode is pretty topical considering what's happened in the last, you know, 12 months. I think a lot of people have a new lens on release, uh, relations in this country. And for the food industry, there's definitely some opportunities there. But before we jump into that conversation, I think our listeners would really benefit from uh, hearing a little bit about your background and also MFHA and the and the goals your organization has. So could you give a little light on, you know, your background? Sure. Uh, I'm a lifer in the restaurant uh, food business, you know, from working in supermarkets, going right to culinary school out of high school, and then uh, doing the whole, you know, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Long Island, New York City apprenticeship at the Waldorf. Uh, so I did a lot of food um, uh, work and then got into management and uh, opened the first Capitol Grill in Providence, Rhode Island for uh, Ned Grace, who's a serial entrepreneur and another seafood restaurant there. Uh, Hemingway's is a local landmark. So I'm a restaurant guy uh, by training. And then um, uh, mid-career, I, I got a chance to go to General Mills in the early 90s. And I spent nine winters in Minneapolis uh, getting used to the cold um, and um, learning about food manufacturing distribution because did all the plant startups and, and uh, worked in R&D and then did a lot of training with distribution folks. So I got to know the business really well. And it was while I was at General Mills, that uh, we were able to get MFHA started. And it, and it came from seeing what the Women's Food Service Forum had been able to do successfully and say, hey, if there's a need for a group to promote and create opportunities for women, well, maybe there's a need for a group that would promote and create opportunities for people of color or underrepresented groups as we call them today. So that's how we got started in uh, 1996. So we're 25 years old this year. September will make 25 years. And uh, we've been making a case for diversity and inclusion as as a good business practice that that is there's lots of social moral and ethical reasons to to be inclusive but you know the one we focus most on is it's good for the bottom line so i think before we can take a look at where we need to go we also kind of need to survey the lay of the land so can you give uh, some statistics about black and latino slash latina communities in the food service industry and some of the current statistics about what you're seeing uh you know in the current day sure uh um, African-Americans make up about 12% of the U.S. population, uh, about the same um, in the food service population. However, at the manager level, uh, you, see a, you see a breakout, uh, a difference for both Blacks and Latinos. Uh, Hispanics, about 18, 19% of the U.S. population, 25% uh, and rising of our workforce population. Again, with both um, uh, those two cohorts, you see uh, a, a stratification as we move up the food chain. So uh, at the restaurant level, you know, um, the 7.9% uh, representation um, when it comes to managers, Latinos, 25%. Uh, when you get it, you look at manufacturers, it's, it's 9.4% of the, of the manager population is, is black and Latino 36%. And then at the distribution level, it, 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 it changes even more so 
where it's only 3% black um, and 22% Latino. So you, you can see that there's a pretty big difference in the fact of um, the population uh, represented in the, in the U.S. and how much of that population shows up in restaurants. Blacks were about the same. Hispanics is a little bit higher. But as you go up the food chain, the higher you go, the whiter it gets, the more male it gets, the more Christian it gets. And that's a problem that uh, persists with the diversity, equity, and inclusion across every industry. Uh, our industry is no different. Okay. So, Jerry, in talks we've had before this conversation, you kind of outlined a four-part plan that's being undertaken by MFHA in 2021 to address this. And the first that you brought up was a minority ownership initiative. So I was wondering if you could let our listeners know what this program's about and the benefits that you foresee uh, companies that partake in it. Sure. Well, when we right from the start, when MFHA first got started, our tenants were about creating opportunities for, for underrepresented groups um, to to increase promotion opportunities, to increase business development opportunities, which included ownership, uh, more manufacturers, more distributors, more restaurant operators, um, and then also to work on the, improving the image of our industry so that it would be more attractive to to blacks uh, and other underrepresented groups. So um, for a long time, we always felt that there needed to be a clear path to ownership. Right, right now, uh, we're seeing lots of uh, success with you know, Asian, Indian, and other immigrant populations doing really well in franchising, not seeing the same success for blacks, black Americans, and, uh, and uh, Latino. So the initiative we were hoping to always to start came to fruition this past year uh, after all of the events of uh, that occurred last year, beginning with um, with uh, 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 George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, the attention was paid across the country and still is to this day on the inequities the, um, that uh, that have impacted the black community. You know, 400 years of of uncompensated labor, slavery, is a big reason why America is the is the strength and the powerhouse that it is. Um, but for a lot of years, blacks weren't allowed to, to get into ownership situations. So um, PepsiCo uh, made a commitment of $2.5 million to sponsor us standing up a franchising initiative that's focused on black Americans to try to create um, 100 new franchises over the next year and expand that from uh, over the next two years and expand that to hopefully 1,000 you know, after, after five years. Now, those are very ambitious numbers, um, but, you know, big... Uh, Big, big dreams, you know, call for big uh, ambition. And so, so um, uh, that's, that's something we're very um, proud of that we were able to get that started. There are three other prongs um, that all together work uh, to advance our agenda. The second one is about leadership development, leadership development that works for blacks and Latinos. See, we have a leadership development initiative in the industry. Most companies do, right? But when you look at the numbers, it must not be working because you don't see them advancing, you know, to those higher levels. And so our work and some research we're doing this year with, with uh, Cornell Quarterly uh, and the National Restaurant Association, another piece of research we're doing with, with uh, uh, Smart Brief, uh, are going to look at some of the, the, the challenges to that leadership and to that makeup and so that we can continue to, to create a better and more effective leadership. Uh, the last two things, one is focused on community and the other one is focused on diversification of boards of directors and C-suite. Uh, it's still the same situation when you go all the way to the top. Um, in 2014, we had seven African-American CEOs of publicly held 
restaurant companies. Today, we have zero. Um, and so that's not going to fix itself. We have to have intentional, uh, uh, purposeful, well-thought-out uh, education and training to create a level playing field for people to compete uh, for those jobs. So I'd love to dive into a couple of these topics more, uh, you know, specifically. And where I'd like to jump right now is that inclusive leadership program. So I know we at the beginning of this, you know, talk we said we we're going to try to find the business case for it. So I was wondering sure. if you can expand on that program a bit, and then why it's so important for a food company to really invest themselves in a program like MFHA's, you know, leadership program. Here. Well, I'm going to flip it if you don't mind and say there's a business rationale. Um, the the rationale is is built around the fact that the the demographics of this country are going to continue on the path they are. We're going to get more black, more brown, more multicultural, more biracial. Whether I like it or you like it, it really doesn't matter. Those numbers are not going to go in reverse. So, you know, it's one of the things that's that core of, of all this struggle you see going on in the country right now where, you know, it's my America. Well, who's my America? Is it, is it white America or black America? How about it's all America? And the reality is that the workforce, the working age population is, is becoming less white and less male. So if you're going to stay in business and be successful, you're going to have to figure out how to hire, develop, promote Women, Blacks, Latinos, Asians, um, immigrants. It's just a fact of life in any single business. So the business case is if you want to be, be in business, you're going to have to do that just from an employee standpoint. Now, when you flip it and you look at the customer side of things, well, the customers are becoming more diverse. If your sales professionals, when they call on me as a restaurant in the urban area, can't speak with cultural fluency, they don't understand the difference between a Dominican uh, and a Puerto Rican and a, and a, and a, and a Mexican um, individual. Different holidays, different, different beans. Dominicans don't play soccer, they play baseball. So this whole aspect of getting to know who your customers are and what they want and how they want to be sold and how they want to be treated is going to be critical for food manufacturers, distribution. I can envision, Chris, training classes for the, the sales force to be more culturally competent, culturally fluent. And the, and the ones who do a better job are going to sell better. And you'll find that, you know, people that understand the culture, they don't even have to speak Spanish to be a better salesperson. Is they understand the nuance. So, so the whole issue of, of this leadership development is you're going to have to have leaders who can lead in living color. White men are going to have to be able to lead and motivate young black boys and women. And, 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 and Asian women are going to have to learn to motivate and, and encourage Hispanic men and female or whoever is in the workforce. You're going to have to be able to hire them, promote them, develop them, and then create products and solutions for them as, as customers. So that's just the facts. It's not just food service, not just hospitality, but across all aspects of business. And everybody has a cell phone, right? You know, so so you the phone companies figured out they have to know how to sell in black communities and Hispanic communities in ways that are culturally relevant and culturally sensitive. And the food service industry is going to have to do the same thing. So let's uh, take it up a few levels, too, and go and talk about the C-suite slash executive board program you were talking about. And I agree, you know, it's not going to happen overnight and it's not going to happen on its own. But how can we, you know, bring more 
voices of color to to these positions? What kind of programs is MFHA kind of supporting here? Well, you always continually have to make the business case. You know, if if all the people at the top of the organization are white and male, mostly male, making all the decisions about the people and the lower levels and the mid levels of the people on the on the street, you know, running the business are people of color, you're going to have disconnect. Um, you're going to have problems. It's going to be challenging. And then if your competitor figures out how to get talented people um, uh, of different ethnic and racial backgrounds, now they have a competitive advantage. So, so for example, Debbie Roberts just took over as chief operating officer at Panera. Black women recognize that because she's African-American. And guess what? Women want to go to work them because they want to see someone like them in the senior leadership roles. So this is hard work. Board seats are given to your friends, your colleagues, people you went to school with, people you live with. And so um, if you don't live in an inclusive environment and you're not exposed to blacks and Latinos and others who could bring great value to the board, um, then and it's a harder it's a harder lift. And so people are going to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because um, that's just the nature of this this work. The world is changing. People's experiences are different. You need those diversity of thought, perspective and experience in the boardroom and at the top of the organization. You notice I said diversity of thought, perspective, and experience. Now, if you can get those thoughts, perspective, and experiences of a black person without anybody on your team being black, well, God bless you. Good luck. If you can do that, that's great. But in most cases, we can't do that. You know, you and I have never been through childbirth. We might have watched it. I've seen it occur a couple times. But we don't have any personal skin in the game to know. So boards and leaders are going to have to do the same thing for women and people of color that they do for their own, which means you got to give people stretch assignments. You got to give them the opportunity, promote them on opportunity and potential, not just performance alone. Um, I have an advisory group uh, of five of the former six black uh, CEOs of public health restaurant companies. All five of them told me that they had never been promoted on potential, but they had each in their own right outright had seen multiple times when their white colleagues were. So Joe got promoted because, oh, he's got potential. But but Clarence Otis, the former CEO of Darden, he never got promoted on potential. It had to be he clearly was performing before he got those opportunities. And I personally have seen it when I was at General Mills where, where they, we acquired Pillsbury. And there was a, a, a young man, um, uh, it's a great friend, and he was a VP of sales. And the president of the division left, and and uh, the, I saw the HR people. I was in the room. They said, "Well, we know Mark's not ready for this job, but we're going to coach him up. We're going to give it to him. We will coach him up. Coach him up. He'll figure it out." That kind of situation almost never happens for women and people of color. So those are the advantages that the system affords people who who look like everyone at the top. So it's going to take leadership, CEOs, conscious white men and women, but particularly men saying, I am going to make an opportunity for a person of color to, to, to rise up in this organization in the same way I'm going to give it to other folks. And we know it can happen because those six black CEOs didn't get put in those positions because, because they were black. They got put in those positions because they were competent and capable and produced and could lead. But we do not have a pipeline for that. 
And the only way we're going to do that is to develop this leadership initiatives that, that, that takes away some of the barriers and that understands the nuances of how um, black women experience the system different than, than white women and different than men in general. And when you understand those things, you can, you can take steps to, to, to ensure that people are not having to be twice or three times as good to be given an opportunity um, uh, that, that their counterparts, you know, don't ever have that kind of a hurdle to, 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 um, to clear. So it's doable. We've seen people do it. We see Denny's, um, uh, John Miller, their CEO, has, has 50% of his board is diverse. His chair of the board is a black woman. Um, these things can happen. Companies can do it, but it's work. And, and it means that you're going to have to open the door and be inclusive on purpose. So the last prong of the plan that you were speaking about uh, really regards community engagement. And you're looking to boost that among food service companies. And I'm just wondering, you know, what is the business case for a food service company or food manufacturer to spend time to engage with these local communities? You kind of alluded to it earlier and being culturally relevant mm-hmm. and culturally, right. uh, I forget the term you used. I think it was culturally responsive uh, and competent. Responsive. Exactly. Yeah. So can we dive into that a little bit more? Sure. Explain your reasoning, your thinking, and then sure. also, you know, maybe some use cases for uh, our listeners that yeah. might be able to apply to their business. Com- communities are, are, are part of every business, whether you have a distribution house that's the outskirts of town or it's downtown, there's a community locally that you engage with. And what do they think of you and your company and your brand? What does your brand say to them? And then there's the communities that work with you. So your communities of color, your black employees, your white employees, your Hispanic employees, your LGBTQ employees. What do those communities think about the company? What does the brand say? PepsiCo doing this sponsorship of our black franchising, put their money where their mouth is, and they say they say that by what they do, what they invest in, this matters. Budgets reflect priority. If you have no budget to reach out to the communities of color, then that's not a priority for you. And then people will say, why should we worry about you? Why should politicians make decisions that will be supportive of you if you don't care about the needs of the community? Uh, so being engaged with the community so that it's a two-way street, it's a give and take, that we invest in those communities. And I'll give you a good example. Darden restaurants, um, I don't know if they still have this practice, but they used to require senior managers, senior executives to serve on the board of a group in the community. So if you're white, you couldn't serve in a white group. You had to serve in a Hispanic or a black. And what they ended up doing was bringing you know, new sets of eyes, smart, capable, talented people to work with this nonprofit, right? And then they got a chance to build their cultural competence because if you didn't grow up with Hispanics and you didn't grow up with Blacks, now you're working with a community group that's trying to serve their interests. You get to know who they are. You get to break down barriers. You get to break down stereotypes. Um, by the same token, we've got to be able to see where we can invest in communities and and see that that in, in this particular community or that community over there, the, the the we need to help put energy into the school system or or mentoring for young boys who don't have um, active dads in their life or whatever the case may be. So it has to be the community sees you as a good place to work. And therefore, if you're a restaurant, a good place to go eat. If you're a distribution company or a manufacturing company, when I go to the store, I want to buy your product. When I see your trucks moving around, I say, hey, that, that company shows up at the Cinco de Mayo piece and they support us or they support LGBT, they support um, a gay uh, pride week or, or month or day or whatever you're doing. They see your brand supporting things that are important to them. If they don't see that, 
your brand has no cultural relevance to them. And when they're looking at you in, in college campuses to decide where they want to work, or they look at your, your website and they see lots of product, but they don't see people like them experiencing success, they say, oop, they move on. And so if you want to be relevant as an employer, relevant as a customer, relevant as a community partner, um, you have to get culturally sensitive to what the needs are of the community. And and I don't mean to to be ridiculous about it. If you're in a part of the country where there's no blacks or very few blacks, nobody's going to expect you to have some robust program reaching out to African-Americans because that doesn't make sense. But frequently we see people right in urban markets, right in Chicago and and, and in Dallas, and, and they their leadership is devoid of anyone who, of who's black or Latino. And the company says, or the community looks at them and says, how can they be here and not find anybody from our community who could show leadership in that company? That company doesn't get it. And of course, you know, today with social media, if you have a problem and it shows up on social media, you can really find yourself in hot water. But if you have a relationship with communities, frequently those, those people will be, will be the ones, those communities will come to the defense of that company. We saw that with Starbucks. Starbucks had an issue where one of their managers made a stupid and silly decision. And people were throwing stones at Starbucks, but a lot of people knew the leadership that Starbucks had already provided and said, hey, wait, 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 they might have made a mistake, but that's not the company we know. The king of this is McDonald's. McDonald's does it better than anyone because their commercials show people that look like them, their philanthropic strategies, and their leadership has, has um, people of color and women across all sectors. So this community engagement piece will is important for the whole industry because it will help shape the image of our industry um, to be more um, uh, inclusive and it'll make it easier for us to attract talent, attract investors, uh, even even get help on the political side because it, it won't be that that you know the the politicians think that our industry doesn't care about the community. So I think you're alluding to the fact also here that you know our country seems to be pretty split right now, and I think food really can serve as an opportunity to bridge some gaps, right? Oh yes, we all need to eat. But on the other half of that, you know, I think some food companies and executives might be a little bit reticent to take a step to participate in this national conversation. Uh, you know, some people might think it's best left to activists, pundits, politicians, and the like. So what would you say to a, an executive in that position that may you know, feel that they want to speak out on this, but there's also a lot of negative that can come with it. So, you know, what would you say to a person like that? You framed it properly. This, These are not easy times, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. You're the CEO or the executive for a reason. You have to make tough calls, but you have to do the right thing. I mean, World War II, we sat on the sidelines long enough till finally we said we need to do something. We got involved and we defeated Hitler and the Nazis, and the world is better off for it. And Germany thanks us every day for that. But there are things going on in this country, young black men being killed um, at exorbitant rates uh, at the hands of police officers. And frankly, it's very small number of police officers that this is happening. But this is a reality. You know, my grandson is 18 years old. He's sitting about 10 feet through the wall from me. And he's, he's got his driver's license this summer, and he'd been stopped three times. The second time he was stopped, we had an agreement that if he got stopped, he'd turn his phone on. And I listened to the police officer as he baited my grandson and tried to get him to say something or do something that could get, give him a reason to arrest him. So these things are happening, um, and it's not fun. Yeah, I know the, the choosing between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter is, is a tough decision. You know, all lives matter, 
but but really all lives can't matter until black lives matter that's how people feel about it there are people who feel very strongly about the about president trump that he you know he 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 was doing the right work and there are people who feel differently and they're all going to come back in our workplace and we're going to have to figure out how we work and get along how we're going to heal this this wound that's open it's not going to be easy we need to take time but we're going to have to make tough decisions. You want to make sure your employees are safe. So I've heard some, seen some examples when the mask issue came up. Should you allow your employees to wear, you know, Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter? And this particular company, Yum, said no. Nobody can put anything on the mask. But it was a safety issue. They wanted their employees to be safe. They wanted their guests to be safe. And if there was any chance that this this mask might cause a friction and somebody would be unsafe, they chose the middle ground. Now, I know other companies who chose, you know, to, to support Black Lives Matter in, in, a, in a visual way and others who chose not to. Um, but that has to be a thoughtful decision. How does it line up with your brand? How do you feel your employees need to hear this? I can tell you it's not just about Black folks anymore. It's about all people who want to see America, you know, become the great republic that we all want it to be. It's great already, but it can be better, and it can be it can it can get much better for everyone. And so, they're hard conversations, Chris. I'm not saying it's going to be an easy thing, but companies need to think about what side of history they want to be on. They have to decide what do they want their brand to stand for. Making choices about supporting political um, elected officials because they did something or didn't do something. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. But when it comes to your employees and your and your and your customers, you do what's right to keep them safe and give them fair and equal opportunity to 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 uh, uh, work and and dine and experience you know the the goodness that your company can bring, and you don't tolerate discrimination. and And those are things that are, they're not that hard um, on this on. In general, when you think about them, but in practice, they are. They're very difficult. Um, so it's something that you know, people can learn from other folks who've, who've, who've made uh, uh, good strides in this and have, have uh, found ways to be successful. And, and no surprise that the companies that are doing this, these things well, the General Mills of the world, the Cokes, the Pepsis, the, uh, the, the supply, the ones that get it uh, have diverse leadership. You know, but even on the distribution side, there are some companies that are that have reached out to us doing Cisco's reached out and Benny Keith and I've we've done work with their executives. Companies recognize we don't know all this stuff. So we need to get some help on how we can, you know, think our way through this because it's messy, but it's necessary. And I agree. You know, this isn't an easy thing to talk about. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the show in the first place was to start this dialogue, right? It's something that I think we need to work on. You're right. We need to find a way to heal as a nation. And you don't really get to get there until you start talking about it, right? So I mm -hmm. really appreciate you coming on and spending the time. And as a final question, I'd just like to ask, you know, for our listeners, what's one small thing that our listeners could do that can kind of, you know, in their daily lives, bring the ideas of MFHA, uh, you know, to the forefront? What can they do to support the movement and what you're trying to get accomplished here? You know, I, that's a good question um, and, and not one that I, I get asked enough. And I, it's very simple. I would say go to somebody who doesn't look like you. I mean, you know, skin tone or different ethnicity um, and, and ask them, you know, how are you doing? You know, we work together. We go to the same church. We're neighbors. Uh, we're, we're sitting in line. Say, how, how are you doing? How are you experiencing the pandemic? How is all this? Uh, and then listen. Because what you're going to hear in many instances, especially if you are sincere, you're going to hear people say, well, you know what? 
I'm struggling or, you know, I'm confused or I'm afraid or, you know, I, I'm angry. Uh, and, and frequently these are people that you work with and you don't know that they feel that way at all because they've got different ways that they see the world, different lenses and different experiences. And yet we, we don't talk enough to find that out. You know, how can I support you? So, so be intentional, be purposeful, do it on purpose. I'm going to go to work and I'm going to talk to somebody and say, how are you feeling? Even if it's not someone who, who looks just like you, another white or another black or another Hispanic person and say, look, at, really, how are you doing in this pandemic? And, 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 and then listen and look for opportunities to, to serve one another with humanity. Uh, we're in the hospitality business. And, you know, my Bible teaches me that hospitality is love of a stranger. And that's what we ought to be doing. And if we do that, then we have a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Jerry, I really want to thank you for your time again today. I think that's going to bring us to a close on this you know, week's episode of the Food Institute podcast. What I'd like to know is, you know, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and your organization and you know, maybe get more involved in some of the policies and the uh, projects you were talking about? Sure. They just go to your, your, your uh, browser and type in mfha.net. And you'll come to mfha.net, our website. Uh, you'll see information about our work. Uh, there's an easy way to find us, to contact us. Um, Google me online, Jerry Fernandez. It'll pop up. My phone number, everything is there. We're here. Uh, we, we'd be happy to talk to any and, and all of you. And thank you, Chris, for what you're doing in the Food Institute for all of what you do to make our great industry better. I really appreciate that. We'll definitely share the link to your website in the description of this episode. That way people have a quick and easy way to click in. Uh, and just want to tell everybody, you know, remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. If you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what we can do for your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. Thank you.